Well, beloved, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. And we're looking this morning, starting in verse 11, and we're going to work our way to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 3, and this is Peter's third sermon in the book. Well, let's turn our attention to God in prayer before we read this passage. Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people because You have told us in Your Word that the natural man cannot understand the things that come from You. So Lord, would You give us the help of Your Holy Spirit that we might discern the truth and that the truth might take root in our hearts. Lord, would You open our eyes to see wonderful things here, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Holy Word? Acts chapter 3, again, verse 11. Hear now the Word of God. While he, that is the lame man now healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's holy and living Word, and may He bless it to us. Brethren, please be seated. Well, This morning we are fresh off the heels of the healing of the lame man. Forty plus years of paralysis was shattered by the power of Christ, and now he's leaping for joy. He enters into the temple with Peter and John, walking and leaping and praising God. And you can imagine, if you were to see that among us, 
That would draw a few looks, don't you think? Who's that joker jumping up and down over there and shouting out? Oh, wait, that's the lame guy. Look at that, he's been healed. Oohs and ahs are going on, and wonder grips the people. And then Luke reports, verse 11, introductory, while he, that man, clung to Peter and John. By the way, the, the lame man already has an intense attachment to the apostles. He's embracing them. He's walking with them. And while all that is going on, verse 11, all the people utterly astounded in this state of amazement ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. So they've moved into the temple area and suddenly it's a flash mob. It's maybe more akin to the sudden sight of a celebrity and droves of people are pressing in to see what is going on. Well, Peter, seeing all these people gathered in bewilderment and curiosity, seizes the occasion for an impromptu sermon. He wasn't going to the temple to preach. He was going to pray. But he will now, being ready in season and out of season to preach God's Word, preach as the occasion warrants. It reminds me of the last sermon of George Whitfield's life. He was a very sick man at this point. He had made his way to a friend's house, a 17-mile horse ride after preaching, to stay with a Reverend Jonathan Parsons in Newburyport, New Jersey. Whitfield felt so miserable, so exhausted, he asked to be excused to go to bed during supper. But unbeknownst to him, a crowd had heard that the greatest preacher known to man was passing through town, and they ran to Pastor Parsons' house to beg Whitfield for an impromptu sermon. Well, as he's beginning to walk up the stairs to go to bed, he hears the people crying out to him to preach. He turns around on the stairs with a candle in his hand, and he preaches, losing all track of time, until the candle goes out, which is a harbinger of what would happen to him that night. He would die. But I'm sure in that impromptu sermon, there are some similarities with Peter's impromptu sermon, which is simply calling on people to turn and trust in Christ. We're going to see three things as we reflect upon Peter's sermon here. And I first want you to see with me, claims to consider. Claims to consider. In verses 12 to 16, Peter starts probing the people over their wonder. And he disabuses them of any thought as they stare at Peter and John, that their power or piety did this thing. And the sense is, guys, why are you looking at us as though we are otherworldly? Why do you think power has somehow inherent in us and we made this man walk? That isn't the case. Now, note the humility here of Peter and John. They are not strutting through the temple. Look at us. Look at what we did. No, they are saying, it's not us. They're not craving the praise of man or soaking in the spotlight. They didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, yes, they spoke the word in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, but they are the instruments of healing. And the instruments of healing should no more be extolled than you would praise the shovel for digging a ditch or the fork for bringing food to your mouth. Now, we're not walking around this morning as those who've been the instruments of healing in the name of Jesus. But whatever we do, and whatever success the Lord gives to what we do, when we use Christ's gifts and He blesses, the power is not in us. He did it. 
And it should put away any boasting in ourselves. The praise goes to Christ. Not to me for this sermon. Not to you for a Sunday school lesson. Not to any of us for some word of encouragement we happen to speak or a service that we offered to a person in need. The flesh craves credit. But the man or woman with the Spirit is driven to praise Christ for His work in us. So here, Peter and John are saying to the people, look, you've got to find the source of power elsewhere. And let me tell you how power came to make this man leap and whose power it was. Verse 13, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus. And note there the covenant continuity. Our God is the unchanging God. He's the great I Am of the Exodus. And Isaiah promised the Father would have a servant that He would exalt. Isaiah 52.13 Behold, My servant, Yahweh says, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's what's happened here. But Isaiah immediately moved to declare that God's servant would draw astonishment at His marred appearance. He will be visited with such suffering that He scarcely looks human. And Peter turns to the instrumental cause of that suffering. These people. The Father glorified His servant Jesus, but He's the very One, verse 13, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate who had decided to release Him. Even Pilate, that wicked, despicable man, knew that Jesus was innocent. But you didn't care. You renounced Jesus, the very one you knew had worked wonders. More than that, verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one. None of you could accuse Jesus of sin. His perfect life wasn't a mystery. It was obvious. But you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. It's one thing to kill someone who's blameless, Peter's saying, but you've aggravated the guilt by ignoring what even pagan Pilate saw, and then you substituted a zealot with blood on his hands for the faultless Jesus. What evil, what injustice to set free a serial criminal to send Jesus to the slaughter. Indeed, Peter says, while all of these folks standing before him were not the ones who drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet, he says, verse 15, You killed the author of life. Or better, that title, the the trailblazer. Or the captain who leads to life. The very one whom God has raised from the dead. Now, you should note here, this could be a sermon on its own, the titles given to Jesus. He's the servant of the Lord. He's the Holy One. He's the Righteous One. He's the captain who leads to life. That is, if any have life, new life, it's come from the Lord Jesus Christ. And how can He give life? Because He Himself is alive. He's the resurrection and the life. God has overturned your wicked slaughter and He's raised up His Son. And Peter says, to this, we are witnesses. Now I want you to see, brethren, here how Peter confronts the people in their sin. He is hammering their callous corruptions. 
you did this, you did this, you did this. And he climaxes with, you killed the Christ. Peter's very direct in his confrontation. He doesn't lighten the seriousness of sin. He doesn't excuse things or make it seem like the crimes weren't all that bad. Unfortunately, this is often what happens in preaching today. To soothe consciences, sin is made small. To make sure people don't feel bad, don't want that at church, right? You don't want to go to a church where you sing in a minor key and people might actually feel guilt over sin. Only happy thoughts here. So sin, particular sin, is ignored. One popular preacher, and I'll just call him the smiling preacher, he famously said after someone prayed a confession of sin, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is the substance. I don't want to claim all that negativity. Sin, wretched, iniquity, broken, ruined. I'm not going to say those things. When negative thoughts come to your mind, they should just die. Never verbalize your failures. Don't give them life. Deny their existence. Peter clearly disagrees. Peter is not preaching the power of positive thinking. I'm okay and you're okay. Let's just think great things about ourselves. No, he says, you have killed the Christ. See your heinous sin. Acknowledge your sin. Now, brothers and sisters, we weren't there refusing to listen to Pilate trying to set Jesus free. We weren't there shouting for Barabbas and yelling that Jesus would be crucified. But every indulgence that we have of the love of ourself over the love of Jesus is as if we were shouting. I don't want Him to be king over me. I will rule my life. I deny Him. And we, even as Christians, we still do this. We push away the conviction of His Word that we would satisfy our own lusts. And every time we ignore His holiness, His conviction of our sin, our twisted thoughts, our anger, our lust, every time we try to bury sin, we are shouting, away with Jesus! Silence Him! Remove Him! Kill Him! Because I don't want to hear about my sin. Now, maybe you don't take your sin that seriously. Maybe you pamper yourself with positive thoughts. I've been known to do this myself. I don't know if this happens to you. Where I try to justify my actions. Whether it be my anger or, or dismiss my callous disregard for others. But I tell you, dear friends, we will never have the captain lead us to life if we think we're alive already. That we're somehow free from sin's condemnation by our own doing. Sin, your sin and my sin, is an assault on King Jesus. It is rebellion that rises to the level of removing the authority, killing the King who confronts you in your evil. Well, that ugliness in our souls has to be seen and owned for the one who doesn't know the need of Jesus. The need of a Savior. 
The one who doesn't feel the conviction of sin in his conscience that I have offended God and I'm in desperate need of a covering. That one will never turn to Christ. And yet, this is the beautiful thing in this passage. The exalted king assailed by these very people to whom Peter is now speaking the truth. He is not overcome by our evil. He lives and He's working. For right here, verse 16, His name, by faith in His name, Peter believing in the name of Jesus that He could heal, and this man hearing the word of life to his body, rise and walk, and believing it, exercising faith in Jesus, that faith made this man strong, Peter says, whom you now see and know. Further, the faith that is through Jesus, Peter's saying. What's the origin of faith? It's through Jesus. It comes from Jesus. Jesus not only rescued this man from his disability, Jesus initiated faith in this man. Jesus is the author of life, the giver of faith. And the perfect health you see in Him is because of the power of Christ. So what is Peter saying? There's hope for you who have sinned so terribly. Look to Christ and live. See, He can break the curse. He can restore what is broken. Whether that be brokenness in your body, as it's evidenced by this lame man healed, or what that brokenness on the outside really points to, the brokenness within. Consider the facts of your sin. Consider God's exaltation of His Son. Consider the power of Christ as the captain of life. And turn to Him, because will He not restore all who seek Him? And that moves, secondly, to the appeal that Peter gives. It's a call to repent. In verses 17-21, to 21, Peter now pleads with them to turn, and he starts by stressing their ignorance. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now the question here, immediately rising the surface is, what's the nature of their ignorance? Of what were they ignorant when they denied and destroyed Christ by delivering Him over to death? Well, verse 18 is going to indicate that their ignorance was of God's eternal purpose in Christ. It's not that they were ignorant of Jesus' greatness. They saw divine power at work, even the very week of His crucifixion. Jesus was doing miracles in the temple. But when the religious leaders arranged their plots to condemn Jesus, many, including the rulers, thought, there's no way this is the Christ, because the Christ can't suffer. Paul will speak to this in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. They can't get over the Messiah don't suffer narrative. But Peter says, brothers, look at God's plan. Verse 18, God foretold by the mouth of all His prophets that the Christ would what? Suffer. And now that plan has been fulfilled. Peter's saying, y'all missed what God said. You were blinded by your own preconceived notions to the very purposes of God. You know, I don't know if this has happened to you. It certainly happened to me a lot. You, you read the Old Testament and you just wonder how the Jews could read the same Bible that I'm reading right here and fail to see the clarity that the Christ would suffer. It's not on every page, sure. That's not what Peter means. But the organic whole of the message of the prophets was of a suffering 
Redeemer, that starts right from Genesis 3.15. The snake crusher will be bruised in his heel. But then you've got to remember that even Peter missed this. How did Peter respond the first time Jesus spoke plainly of his suffering? He took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Can you imagine that just for a moment? That he's rebuking Jesus. And he received a sharp censure. Get behind me, Satan. Peter was ignorant of God's plan. Peter didn't shout for Jesus to be crucified, but Peter denied the Lord. And yet God had mercy on foolish and stubborn Peter. And now this man who's tasted amazing grace for his atrocious sin, he appeals to these sinners. Verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back. Lay down your ignorance. Put off your corrupt thoughts. Change your mind about Jesus. Move from mocking Him and choosing a murderer instead of Him to making Him the focus of your whole life. Stop your rebellion and serve Christ as King because He gives life to all who trust in Him. And why should you do that? Why should you repent and turn to Him? Peter gives you three reasons or motivations to repent. One, verse 19, that your sins may be blotted out. Picture the inventory of your every iniquity. Every lawless deed written down in permanent ink on the heavenly ledger whereby God will make judgment against you. And then suddenly, picture the ink erased. One moment, there was a certificate sealing your doom as a sinner. And then if you turn to Jesus... There's rather the pronouncement, washed, righteous in God's sight. No condemnation. This is why you should repent. All of your sins will be washed away. Are you rejoicing, brethren, in that fact this morning? That every stain, the ones that you know about and the ones that you don't even know, every stain is removed. Should not that kindness lead you to repentance? And then there's a second motive to repent. Verse 20, Repent that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Not only will your crimes be blotted out, God will shower relief and refreshment on your soul. And the sense of the language is, a cooling wind of relief will blow on you in a situation of oppressive heat. Suddenly your soul will feel like a powerful breeze like given to the body on a hot day. And this refreshing, beloved, that Peter's alluding to is the abundant life we have in Jesus Christ right now. It's not just that we have hope for a future. Peter will get to that in a minute. We have peace with God now. We have the spirit of adoption now. We have the relief today of knowing that the sun-scorched world that's touched with sin and curse, will not drive us to destruction. Rather, the, the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit has blown on our soul to give us life. And we have access to God. We have the assurance that God loves us. We have abiding grace that we would resist the pull of sin. We have lightness in our soul rather than the heaviness of a harsh reality of the curse that would drag us down to death. Now, this refreshment doesn't mean that the Christian won't face any hard things. But brethren, even when hard things come, 
The outer man is wasting away. Some of you noticed that a little more this morning when you looked in the mirror. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. And even when death touches our lives, we grieve with hope. Do you, who have turned from sin to Jesus, do you know this refreshing? The weight of the burden of your guilt gone? The oppression of a life of evil lifted so that now you have the joy of a relationship with God? The security of the presence of God? The nearness of Christ attending to you? Do you feel refreshed even when you're struggling? Do you know that there's a God looking to you to be the lifter of your head? Again, does that lead you to repent because of the kindness of God? And then a third motive. End of verse 20. Peter says, You should repent that He, the Father, may send the Christ appointed for you, who is Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. The prophets, we can see this in Zechariah 8 that was read this morning. The prophets all speak of the renewal of the earth. A day when there will be rest. A day when the wolf will lie down with the lamb. A day when none would harm or destroy in all of God's holy mountain. When the curse is totally removed and everything put right. And even the desert will blossom. Edenic lushness will be all that we can see in the new heavens and new earth. And all fear, all threats, all death is gone. What a day that will be. That's the restoration Peter's talking about. You should repent because Jesus will be sent for you to bring this restoration. Look how personal this is. He, he pointed this finger at them and said, you killed Christ. But now he says, Jesus is coming for you. How sweet is that? The Lord Jesus is coming to rescue His bride that He's purchased with His blood. He's not sent for you to judge you if you turn to Christ. He's sent on a relief mission. If you are in Jesus, Jesus will come and He will end all your afflictions and He will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. That restoration that's yet future was just witnessed in this man. It was a picture of Isaiah 35 where the lame will weep like a deer. That's a foretaste of what we all experience. That everything wrong with this world will be fixed. And what does that mean for you and me? No more cancer. No more arthritis. No more spectacles. I can't see you at all. No more disunity. No more shattered dreams from ruined relationships. Do you have ruined relationships in your family? No more enmity with man. No inner turmoil. No tainting of the beauty of the earth. No weeds. We will see everything restored, raised imperishable, with no weakness and no dishonor. And in that restoration, we will experience the pleasures that are forevermore at God's right hand. What a day that will be. It's yours if you repent. But if you don't repent, then these three things are not going to happen to you. You will not have your crimes blotted out. They will be there to witness against you every idle word. And the Lord will hold you accountable. 
and you will not taste refreshing now. You may have a, a taste of the passing pleasures of this world, but peace will be a mirage. And then, destruction will come upon you. And when Christ Jesus comes, you will be crushed. So you see what Peter's doing. What's it going to be? Freedom from sin's power or enslavement? Sweet comfort from knowing Jesus in every trial? Or distress and despair with no sense of the presence of God leading down to the last day where you are calling out for the rocks to fall upon you and hide you from the Lamb? Peter is appealing to these people, see the blessings of Christ now and come to Him. Well, brethren, do we know these blessings and do we rejoice in them? Can we say with Paul, no matter what we face, for to me, to live is Christ. Life is about Jesus. And I have satisfaction in Him. And to die is gain because I just go to be with Him. Can we say that we've learned contentment whether we've been brought low or we abound? Whether we have plenty, our cupboards are abounding with stuff, or we find that they're bare. Can we say Jesus is all the world to me? How did Charles Wesley sing of it? Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in Thee I find. Do you see the amazing grace in Jesus here? These people who refused to listen to Pilate's judgment that Jesus was innocent, who denied the spotless Lamb, who chose Barabbas over Jesus, who delighted in the death of God's Son, these people can be forgiven. These people can find every sin washed away. A day of refreshing every day. And a future joy entering into the presence of God. And dear friends, if God can forgive these people, is He not able to forgive you? You may be here this morning and you are a notorious sinner. You have a rap sheet of inner evil that is a mile long. You may have an ugly past, a rotten present. In the midst of your trials, you may have responded in blasphemy. But if you turn to Jesus, you will be cleansed and claimed as a son of God. Some of you here have sought Jesus, and yet there's still a struggle to believe that you're forgiven. Your unbelief is confronting you here. Look at what Peter is saying. You're washed. You're being refreshed. Future hope is set before you. Embrace Christ and live for Him. Leave your sin behind. Don't you see that there's forgiveness that's big enough that would even blot out the killing of Jesus? So can't there be mercy to pardon your sin? Oh, that we would see the the boundless grace in Christ the Lord. But then finally see with me. Curse and covenant blessing. In all of the prophets Peter mentioned who spoke of Christ, he, he highlights closing the sermon with, with two things. He first points to Moses. He says basically, Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, Moses said, a prophet like me is coming and you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. This is what the Father reminded Peter, James, and John about on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Moses spoke of Christ to come, and you guys missed it. But additionally, what I'm telling you is, Moses' message is still relevant. 
Jesus is exalted to heaven, yes, but he is still speaking. What a striking thing to say. You can still listen to him. It's not too late. How can you listen? Well, King Jesus is making his appeal through his ambassador, Peter. It's much the same way right now. As I preach peace, Christ is preaching peace. If you hear the call to repent from a servant of Christ, who are you really hearing? You're hearing Jesus. You can listen to Him. You can hear the voice of Jesus and rest. And yet there's a curse that's mentioned here as well. Verse 23, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, the greater Moses to come, shall be destroyed from the people. If you refuse to listen to Christ, you shall be destroyed, or, or better, cut off. This is the word the Greek translation of the Old Testament will constantly use about being cut off from the covenant. If you don't circumcise, you're cut off. If you don't practice the Passover, you're cut off. If you follow other gods, you're cut off. It's also the word used of what God will do to the pagans in the land of Canaan. He will cut them off. That will happen if you don't listen to Jesus. To refuse the Son appealing in mercy is to refuse the Father. That's what He's saying to them. And you cannot stand in right relationship to God the Father if you don't have the Son. Listen to the Son before it's too late. Because if you're deaf to Christ, you will die. And that isn't just Moses' message. Moses says, or sorry, Peter says, it's the message of all the prophets. All the way down to Malachi. But then Peter highlights a blessing. And you're thankful because he doesn't end on a sad note. He reminds the people, verse 23, of their covenant heritage. He says, look, you're the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, that is in your seed, a particular coming individual, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Peter's saying, Jesus is that seed of Abraham, and He brings blessing to all the families of the earth. That's both Jew and Gentile. But while the families of the earth will know blessing, and God's salvation will reach to the ends of the earth, verse 26, God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first. Do you remember how Paul highlights this in Romans 1? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew First, Peter and John begin their witnessing for Christ where? At Jerusalem first. And these Jews are hearing the sweet sound of salvation found in Christ. Peter's saying, look, brethren, see your blessings and embrace them. Come and know what Christ can give to you. He is the very promise of the fathers. You are the inheritors of that promise if you believe. You've been privileged to have the oracles of God where God is telling you all of His purpose. You've heard the Word. Sunday for them. Saturday after Saturday after Saturday after Saturday. You've gone to synagogue. You've heard this. You've heard the Word read your whole life. Well, listen to it and receive it in faith. And come as an heir of the covenant to Jesus. Because recognize, covenant blessing is not automatic. Just because you're a Jew according to the flesh doesn't mean you're a son of Abraham. That isn't sufficient. The blessing comes to you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What's the, the quick message? It's really simple. You can't love your sin and have the Savior. You can't claim God's blessings and abandon God's Christ. 
To get blessing, you must have Jesus. There's only blessing in His name. So if you want the blessing of Abraham, and all of you would say, we're the children of Abraham, you have to see Jesus and live. You have to embrace Christ as He's offered to you. He is the Christ of the covenants. Now brethren, we're not Jews, but we're Gentiles who've been grafted in. And we should note, while the Jews heard this word first, we too are being told there's blessing found for all the families of the earth if you but repent and turn to Jesus. And yet I want you to read carefully verse 26. While we have the responsibility to repent and turn back, that's been very clear, the blessing of God to His people is a turning every one of you from your wickedness. It's a turning. In other words, who is it that can turn you? It's the Lord. Only the Lord gives repentance. It, brethren, it's a gift. Much like faith. You remember Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Repentance is also a gift. That's how this miracle really leads to the message. This is the way it worked with a lame man. Who acted first in the lame man? Did the lame man do something or did Christ initiate? Christ initiated. Christ made this man's feet and ankles strong. Christ did something in him. The command came through Peter to do what he could never do, rise up and walk. But Christ made the impossible possible. And likewise, that's what Jesus will do for His people. You could give an excuse, I can't repent. I'm totally depraved. That's true. But you must repent. How do I do that? You look to the God who gives you the power to do it. It's much like one of my favorite stories in the Bible of the man with the withered hand. Mark chapter 3, he comes to Jesus and he's got a withered hand. And what does Jesus tell him to do? Stretch out your hand. He can't do that. But he can by the power of Jesus. You can repent by the power of Jesus. He commands repentance, but He gives repentance. And He can cause us to turn. The duty is ours. The power is His. And this should make us see the glory of grace. Jesus is willing to give repentance. If you and I were in the place of Jesus, what would we do to the people who killed us? Who denied us? Who handed us over to death for a murderer? I know what I would do. That's not what Jesus does. And what happens here? Well, we're going to read about it in future weeks, but the church is about to grow to 5,000 people as a result of this message. Surely hearing this sermon and hearing of God's great plan, sin seriousness, yes, but the staggering nature of the God's grace to make the foulest clean, that should make all of us flee unto Christ. And if we've taken refuge in Jesus already, oh brethren, may it, may it move your heart to joy. I'm not necessarily suggesting that you go out of the church this morning walking and leaping and praising God, but maybe you should. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that though we are poor, vile sinners, as Rutherford once put it, You bring us into your house of wine, your place of blessing. May we see the great blessings that you have given us in Christ. 
And may we therefore turn to the only one who can wash our record of debt away, who can refresh us with His presence, and who gives us a prospect of eternal life in our future. Lord, make us now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we pray this in the glorious and mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.